Here today, gone tomorrow. On March 25th, 1958, an international rock and roll star named Elvis Presley suspended his music career to serve his country in the U.S. Army. Famous for his iconic hair, Elvis made international headlines the next day when he received his first GI buzz cut, dubbed the hair cut, heard around the world. Let's have a little trivia here. Can you name for me where Elvis got this buzz cut? You don't even have to raise your hand. Fort Chaffee. Fort Chaffee Barbershop, just a few miles from where you and I are seated today. I actually got the privilege to be on a tour this week with our dear brother Jack. And so I would encourage you, if you're looking for a holiday festivity, since you can't get out and do many things apparently, go check out the Fort Chaff Barbershop and have some fun. Elvis was legendary in his day. In the 1950s, 60s, and into the 70s, Elvis was a renowned household name for many in America and, quite frankly, around the world. Elvis pushed the limits against the musical norms of his day, inspiring some musicians to greater and, I would even say, further talents in their own right, uh, but also agitating others towards further cultural divides. From his dazzling black hair, his fashionable plaid jacket, his swinging hips, his captivating voice, Elvis had truly made a name for himself. You know, if Google had existed back then and you would have typed in Elvis Presley into the search engine, you, you would have seen the essence of what human popularity and fame is all about. However, fame, like hair, can be here today and gone tomorrow. Fame is something that humans possess for a brief moment, sometimes a day, sometimes a year, maybe even perhaps an entire generation. But as quickly as Elvis's black hair hit the floor of the Fort Chaffee barbershop, Human fame can fall quickly, too. Human fame is like a slippery soap bar that slides out of our hands. You know, human beings like us, we're, we're fallible, we're sinful, we're mortal, we're fickle. We may obtain fame for a moment, but it won't always be there. We'll either have someone eclipse us and overshadow our fame, or our fame will perish when we perish from this earth. But there is one whose fame and renown that remains constant. It endures. His fame isn't dependent on what the passing culture deems as popular or cool. Nor is his fame derived from somewhere like Nashville or the military or even what your family or a false church says. The value and worth of who he is transcends time, culture, or even the popular trends of each generation. His name 
unlike the names we may find in history books or in Hall of Fame museums, will be great on a universal scale forever. This is none other than the God of Holy Scripture, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the covenant-keeping God who makes his promises and keeps every one of them. This is the God we read about earlier from Romans 11, verses 33 to 36. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You see, his wisdom is far beyond the greatest intellect of a human mind that any university has ever seen. His counsel is far beyond the reach of the most influential psychiatrist or psychologist that the world can produce. His judgments are pure and perfect, making some of the highest governing authorities on earth look like an amateur kangaroo court in comparison. He is the righteous judge of all the earth who always does what is right. He is the heavenly husband who loves his bride relentlessly, even when his bride is faithless to him. He is the heavenly father who compassionately carries his children when they are wandering in the wilderness of unbelief and idolatry. He is the king of heaven's armies. He is the Lord of hosts whose power is superior to every king, every governor, every commander, every nation, every priest, every pastor, every parent in all the universe. So sovereign and so powerful is our God. The scriptures tell us that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And the Lord turns it whichever way he wishes. Proverbs 21, verse 1. Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11 declares, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. You might ask, well, is anyone ever going to surpass, trump, and overcome God's kingdom? Psalm 103, verse 19, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. In fact, throughout history, the God I have just been describing to you, the God of Scripture, reveals himself in matchless power, in glory, in sovereignty over the most prideful and famous of men. Whether it was Pharaoh of Egypt or Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, 
our God is able to humble anyone who stands against him in pride. We read in Daniel 4, verses 34 to 37, of a man who was brought to the lowness of an animal. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. That's the God we've been singing to this morning. Whenever God's people in the Old Testament began to lose sight of the greatness of God that you and I just heard, He would remind them of who he is, oftentimes, by sending a messenger, a prophet, to proclaim to them about the most important being they could ever know in their life, their great king, the Lord of hosts. To that end, we begin a new sermon series this morning through the Old Testament prophet, of Malachi. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open to the Old Testament book of Malachi. If you're looking in the chair Bibles provided, it should be on page 467. Uh, it comes right after the book of Zechariah and then right before the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament. While you're turning there, let me give you a little background and context, because when you're beginning a new book of the Bible, you need to be caught up to speed on where on earth are we at in redemptive history. God's special and chosen people, the nation of Israel, have been taken into captivity for 70 years in Babylon. The sins of rebellion against their promise-keeping God led to the consequences of God's displeasure and discipline, which caused them to be exiled, run out of town, all the way to Babylon. Now, there were two very obvious exiles in the Old Testament, the one to Assyria and Babylon. You can read more about those exiles in 2 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 25. However, the land, or the Lord rather, had promised to restore his faithful remnant back into their homeland. You ever know that verse, Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13? God's promising he's got plans to prosper them, plans for their good, plans for hope, plans for a future. And that was to take them back to their land, 
to reestablish worship and their welfare and to cause his people to prosper again. So, was God faithful to do that? Well, in 539 B.C., after the ancient kingdom of Babylon was defeated, the Persian king, Cyrus, was sovereignly used of God, like a tool you would use in your garden to stir up the people of God as God stirred up his heart to release them, to let them go back to their land and provide for them everything they would need to do it. And so we come to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. If you haven't read Ezra and Nehemiah in a long time, it would be really good to read those two books this week if you want to track with me through the book of Nehemiah. When you get to Ezra and then Nehemiah, several waves of exiles have made it back to the land. Once they arrived, the various forms of leadership in Israel began to be established, like priests and many other roles of leadership, and they began construction. Uh, they bought the land, so to speak. They, they actually are lining up all the tools they got from Cyrus's home depot. The construction project begins. Things are exciting. They're met with hope and optimism. And all that they knew was things are going to be going back to normal or better than they ever were. It's what the prophets told us, right? The task was met with eager expectation. People were ready to work. But then it wasn't always so easy. Just like Satan does to his Christ's church when God's doing a work in his people's lives the enemy comes attacking. The surrounding enemies of Israel began to oppose the work, and threats of intimidation and manipulation caused people to be afraid, and they stopped working. Then, like God always does, he sends a faithful messenger, a faithful prophet, and he sends Haggai and Zechariah. So if it's been a while since you've read there, it would be good to catch up in reading those two small books. And once God raises these prophets up, the Bible says they responded with repentance and courage and they built the temple. It was built and established in 515 BC. However, you would think the story has ended there, but it hasn't. Sometime within a hundred years or so, around the mid-century 5th BC, it appeared that many of the same problems that Ezra and Nehemiah faced in their day had began to permeate the lives of people in Malachi's day. The book of Malachi actually highlights these similarities as we'll read about today and especially next week, the spiritual apathy and indifference that is set in among the leadership of God's people, namely the priest. They were given the instructions by God to lead the people in worship to God. But what happened? Idolatry began to pop up and pollute the families through illicitly formed mixed marriages 
and neglect in faithful giving of their tithes and contributions indicated that they had had a poor understanding of God's stewardship that he had given them? Though the temple had been rebuilt, though the lights were turned on and the worship had been reinstated, time passed and a cancerous indifference, a laxness in worship, a half-hearted devotion had spread to the lives of the people. Instead of God's name being great in their eyes, God's name had become trivial in their eyes. Their big God theology had suddenly become weak God theology. Instead of singing, how great thou art, they were singing, how okay God is. And it showed by their suspiciousness of God and the sacrifices they offered him in worship. The book of Malachi is set up, though. Uh, You might like this if you are a lawyer or you are ever really good at kind of making your case. Uh, The book of Malachi is formed around six disputes where God brings a charge to his people, and then the people kind of grumble and complain back to God. So this should be up on the screen, but this will give you a framework for the next four sermons. Dispute number one, a questioning of God's character, namely his love. Dispute number two, a dispute about the contempt the priests would show God. Dispute number three, a dispute about Israel's covenant breaking. Dispute number four, a dispute about God's justice. Dispute number five, a dispute about repentance. And dispute number six, about harsh words raised against the Lord. So this morning, our focus is going to primarily touch on those first two disputes as we look together at Malachi chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Follow with me as I read. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother? declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father... Where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? 
says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. And I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it. When you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand? says the Lord of hosts. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. This is God's word. The main idea of the sermon that you can track with you as kind of a handle to hold on to is this. God cares how he is to be worshipped. So give careful attention to his word as you worship him. God cares how he is worshipped. So give careful attention to his word as you worship him. Verse 1, the book opens up with a simple superscription. That's just really a heading that gives you an idea of what's going on. Now, in Malachi, we don't really have a whole lot, but we have enough to understand the importance of what he's about to say. He says right there in verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. This word oracle it here means an urgent message. It literally can be translated a burden. 
But this urgent message or this burden wasn't simply a result of just someone having a bad day at work or someone who's impatient. Like maybe your children may have been with you saying, Mom, Mom, I want to go do this. I want to go do this. No, no, no. That's not the kind of urgency we're talking about here. This oracle, this burden was not some momentary, impatient fit of anger. But, as our text says, it was a burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. See, throughout redemptive history, in particular the Old Testament, God spoke to his people, sometimes in fairly miraculous ways, whether a burning bush or a donkey, through visions and dreams. But oftentimes he would speak directly to an ordained messenger called a prophet. A true prophet was to say only what God said and say to God's people what he meant. Nothing more, nothing less. In fact, Malachi's name literally means my messenger. Or you could more accurately put it together, Yahweh's messenger. He was God's man for God's task. And the message that Malachi was ready to give was not some message he just came up with, like a school project you stayed up late one night trying to just make up. This wasn't some kind of creative storytelling that Malachi wanted to do for his friends. It was not a message where he was simply just blowing off steam and then kind of added something spiritual at the end, like, God bless you. No, this oracle, this burden, was an urgent message from God through Malachi to Israel. In many respects, beloved, when we gather as a church every Lord's Day and we sit quietly while the word is being proclaimed. It is a really good picture of what's going on in Malachi chapter 1. When the preacher stands before the people and he opens up the book, God speaks. Brothers and sisters, when scripture speaks, God speaks. That's why a church should not merely accommodate the word of God, But the word of God, the scriptures should be unleashed. They should be publicly and repeatedly exposed before the ears of his people. And regardless of the type of week that you might have had, regardless of the giftedness of the preacher, whether he is good or okay, when we hear the Bible proclaimed, we should all have and earnestness, and eagerness to listen, because God, this God, is speaking. Practically speaking, God speaks to us through his written revelation to wake us up to the reality that God exists and that he is with us. Brothers and sisters, guest, 
This is not a pastor's rant, but this is an urgent encouragement to you. There is never a week that goes by that you and I do not need to hear from this God. You and I may take a vacation to rest our bodies, but we should never take a vacation from hearing from our God because we need to hear from our God week in and week out. So if you're ever tempted on Saturday night into Sunday morning going, you know what, I think I'm just going to skip out on church tomorrow. I mean, what's one Sunday going to hurt? If you ever have that, just cross your mind. Let me just tell you on behalf of God and his word, God didn't say that. It's actually the total opposite. When you are feeling the most tempted to ignore God's word, just know that there is an enemy that wants to put earmuffs over your ears more than you realize. Everyone, including this one right here, before I can preach to others, I need to hear from him. Pray that your pastor who spends hours in this book does not do that merely for your benefit, but first for mine. I need to hear that. Pray that I would never, as your pastor, get tired and weary of hearing from God before I proclaim to you. So what did God say to Israel through the prophet Malachi? What was it that they urgently needed to hear? Look at the first half of verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Before God confronts his people with their outward acts of disobedience, he confronts them first with the kindness of his love for them. The first words that God speaks to Malachi or through Malachi to Israel is this. I have loved you. In Hebrew, it's in the perfect tense. It literally reads like this. I have loved you in the past and I continue to love you even now. God's love began far back in the history of his people and remained in full force to the present day. And yet, notice how they responded to him. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? It's easy to forget how much God loves you when life is hard, isn't it? A scary diagnosis from a doctor. A hard marriage. Evil done to you. They get swept under the rug. It's really hard to hear, God loves me. When everything around you 
seems to be saying otherwise. For Israel, they had high hopes. They were excited. They made that trek back to Jerusalem, and the reestablishment of the people had begun. They thought the Davidic kingdom was now going to be on full display. But over the years, through sin and suffering, their hearts had begun to grow hard, cold, annoyed with God. So much that they questioned God's love for them. Do you question God's love for you this morning? I mean, this is church. Why not be honest? I mean, we know from Malachi, God already knows what you're asking. He already knows what you're saying. Does hearing the words, I have loved you, seem to just fall to the floor instead of penetrate your heart? Friends, never forget in the dark what God has revealed in the light. Never forget in the dark what God has revealed in the light. God is love, and he does not change. Even if we do and our circumstances change. So if that's where you're at this morning, keep tracking with me. Notice how God deals with Israel's disbelieving heart. Notice the wisdom of how God speaks to a jaded soul. So what does God do? Well, he gives them a little history lesson, takes them into the deep end of theology, and reminds them of his unconditional and enduring love. Look at verses 2 to 4. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. In order to address Israel's spiritual problem of questioning God's love, God reminds them of the spiritual heritage from where their relationship first came. Starting back in Genesis chapter 12, God had determined to create a nation, a people, from the offspring of Abraham and through his descendants. God would bless the nations. Abraham and his wife Sarah would eventually have Isaac in their old age. And through Isaac and his wife Rebekah would one day come the children of promise. In Genesis 25, we are told that Rebekah was pregnant with twin boys. God bless her. 
Jacob and Esau. And from these two boys, before they were born, God would sovereignly choose Jacob as the seed through which God would continue his redemptive plan of salvation to the nations. The younger brother, Jacob, would eventually receive the blessings of the firstborn as his older brother Esau sold it out of a hasty decision on a really tiring day for a single meal. In time, two nations would come from these two boys, the 12 tribes of Israel from Jacob, that's Genesis 32, and the Edomites from Esau, that's Genesis 36. In time, the Edomites would eventually become a thorn in Israel's side. Uh, They were the joker to Batman. They were the constant annoying harassment to Israel, especially when Israel was being exiled to Babylon. The Edomites added on. They dogpiled on the taunts. They dogpiled on the evil done to them with the Babylonians. They were indeed a despised enemy of God's people. But because God promises in his word, the God of this Bible, to inflict wrath on those who unrepentantly persecute and wrongly treat his people, God's justice would be vindicated in his timing. God would declare future judgment on them for their hateful treatment of his covenant people. You might say Edom's sins would certainly be found out. If you're here today and you are abusing, oppressing, or harming another person made in God's image, you need to repent right now. God sees it. He knows it. And if you don't turn from that sin and trust in God's mercy through Christ, you will be held accountable on the day of judgment. I say that because with children in the room, I won't go as far as I want to say, but in the church, there are things done that get wiped under the rug and called Christian, and it's not. If you are oppressing someone today, stop right now and get counsel and help. Listen to the indictment on Edom. Edom was prideful, and yet God would tell them, like he tells every sinner on the planet Earth, you might sin here, but you will not have the last word there on the day of judgment. If you're really interested to learn why these people were so evil, read through the book of Obadiah. I'm giving you so many things to read this morning. Or Ezekiel's chapters 25 and 35. So, back to Malachi. God is reminding the people of Israel of what they already knew in the scriptures and what they had known through previous generations. But like many of us, when sin and suffering begin weighs on our hearts and minds, We can too, like them, forget God's love, at least in the moment when we can't feel God's presence in our life. 
Did you know it is possible to feel deserted by God and yet be fully loved by him all at the same time? Did you know that? You can feel like God's a million miles away and it still doesn't change the fact that he deeply loves you even in that moment. Friends, the root of spiritual apathy is not God's cold absence from your life. The root of spiritual apathy, spiritual indifference, is forgetting how much God has loved you even before you ever chose to love him. You see, Malachi is giving a history lesson not to bore them, but to renew their mind according to truth. He needed to remind them of God's sovereign and unconditional love. And he does that by reminding them of God's free and sovereign choice to make a covenant with them, to make a promise to them before they ever chose to love him. In Deuteronomy 7, God explains why he chose Israel as his covenant people. And if you've never read this chapter, I would encourage you to study that maybe this week. Why did God choose Israel? Were they beautiful? Were they lovely? Did they meet all the standards of what a mighty nation could look like? We read in Deuteronomy 7, starting in verse 6, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God says it wasn't anything he saw in Israel that made him choose them. It wasn't their strength. It wasn't their fame. It wasn't their number. God chose them and made them his treasured possession, the scriptures say, because he loved them. Brothers and sisters, that's good news. God chooses to love us not because of anything we do or don't do. That's grace. We don't bring anything to the table except our failures in sin. And yet God treats us better than we deserved. God does not owe you or you or me anything except judgment. Beloved, has anyone ever told you that? You and I deserve hell. We don't deserve God's love. We don't deserve God's blessings. We don't deserve God's patience. We don't deserve God's kindness. We don't deserve God's generosity. God doesn't owe us anything. God doesn't look at mankind and say, let me see who the best 
that I can put on my team. It's actually quite the opposite. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, Paul reminds us of this salvation. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is precisely how God deals with Malachi. He, in essence, says this, you question my love for you? Let me remind you of something. Remind you of the covenant I made with your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was not a covenant based off their righteousness. It was not a covenant based off their good works. It was not a covenant based off any foreseen faith or merit in them. The covenant was based on my free choice to show you my mercy. Over the years, before I was a pastor, and especially since I've become a pastor, I have found that believers have a problem with the doctrine of election. God's free and sovereign choice to show grace and mercy to some, and God's free and sovereign choice to show justice to others. But brothers and sisters, I don't care on what side of the Mississippi you're from. Last time I checked, my Bible said we're all born in sin. We all deserve God's justice. Everyone, black, white, Indian, old, young, blonde, red, rich, poor, we are all doomed. Look at the flood in Genesis 6 to 9. The whole earth gets flooded and eight are saved. Look at the Egyptians. Thousands are thrown into the Red Sea, immediately entering into death. And a remnant are taken out. Thousands are killed in Babylon. Thousands are killed in Assyria. And a remnant brought back to Jerusalem. Jesus Christ, the God-man who lived a perfect life, a sinless life, only ever having the love of God radiate between his heart and his father's. And Christ, the sinless son of God, bore the wrath of God in judgment in our place. And God, three days later, announced to the world his son conquered the grave. Beloved, the good news of the gospel 
is that we are messed up. We are sinful through and through. We are sick. We are dead. We are reeking of rebelliousness to God, and yet God loves us through his son, Jesus, and loves us with the love he has for Jesus. That's grace. That's mercy. That's the only reason why you worship this great God today is because he's been so good to you. He's been gracious to you and me. God has never been unjust with any human that's ever lived. Deuteronomy 32.4 says it this way, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Beloved Christians should not be fighting over the doctrine of God's sovereign grace in election because everyone on planet earth deserves God's justice. We are wicked. We are sinful. We are prideful. We are self-seeking. We are hard-hearted. Our greatest works are filthy rags before his holiness. We deserve what the Edomites got, judgment. But Jacob was sinful too. Why did he spare Jacob? What was the difference? If they were both sinful before God, why did God spare Jacob and not Esau? Why did God continue showing mercy to the remnant of Israel and not the Edomites? Why did God save you and not judge you immediately and send you into hell like you righteously deserve? Have you ever pondered at night on your bed and asked that question, why did God save me? I want you to hold your spot in Malachi. This is a lengthier sermon, but this is really good stuff. Romans chapter 8. Hold your spot in Malachi. Turn to the New Testament book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. Starting in verse 28, I just want you to follow with me, and I just want you to circle any words you might not understand, look them up later, but I really want you to focus on the pronoun us and we as a result of what we're going to read. Romans 8, starting in verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, 
Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am speaking the truth in Christ, chapter 9. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, listen to verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. There is a lot in Romans 8 and Romans 9. And I leave that to you and some buddies to talk about over some very caffeinated coffee. But here's the main takeaway. I want you to get from Romans 8 and 9, where Paul quotes Malachi chapter 1, is this. Worship that is pleasing to God is worship in response to God's free and sovereign choice to save you. Worship that is pleasing to God is worship offered in response to God's free and sovereign choice to save you. Listen, if you're here today and you're listening to these very dense, deep in, big God truths, I just want you to know, don't be afraid of them. You know, climbing the Rocky Mountains might be scary, but the Lord says, why don't you just come a little closer and let me show them to you from the ground up. You see, we're not told we have to understand everything in God's word. We just are told to trust God who does. And brothers and sisters, when you realize the depths of your sin, you will begin to find out, like I did about 10 to 12 years ago, how little I understood the grace of God. That he is the potter and we are the clay. And that is a sweet thing for those who are trusting in Christ. If you're here today, whether you're six years old or 60, or you're married to someone who's a believer, but you would not say you are, this God we've been speaking about, he works all things for good, which means that you're here today sitting under the word of God, and that is a kindness to the Lord. Turn from your sins. Look to Jesus who bore God's wrath and rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father and now intercedes for all of those who turn to him by faith and trust him. The greatest decision you'll ever make in your life is receiving God's mercy by faith. See, both Malachi and Paul are really just stating the same thing. This is not a New Testament thing. This is not a Calvinism thing. This is not a Blake Boylston thing. This is an Old and New Testament thing. This is the old story just being told once again. God chooses to save sinners to show us his mercy in which we don't deserve. 
and God chooses to judge sinners to demonstrate his wrath, which we all deserve. That's why in verse 5 of Malachi 1, the prophet strengthens their hearts by telling them once again, God will judge the ungodly and unrepentant who have brought so much pain in his people's lives. And that's hope for you and I too, beloved. The scriptures say we should never avenge ourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Some wrongs in this life will not be made right into the next. God can be trusted. That's why in verse 5, he says, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. He's saying, I am not just simply the God of the nation of Israel. I am the God of the nations. After God exposes their hearts of disbelief, he then now puts the leadership on the platform. This will go out much quicker because we're going to spend more time on that next week. Look at verses 6 to 7 of how God addresses the priest. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I then am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts, O priest who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. You see, the priests had one job, really. I mean, you could, you could nuance it. But the main thing we see very clearly in Malachi's day is they were to lead God's people in worship. They were the closest thing to the preacher in some ways you might get even this morning. And guess what? They had one task to do, and they bombed it. A big F. That's an L, but I don't know how to do an F. Instead of giving God the glory and reverence and awe and honor that he deserves, the priests were sloppy in their service. They were giving God the leftovers. They were half-hearted. They were double-minded. They were merely going through the motions, appearing alive on the outside, but were dead on the inside. Their spiritual apathy eventually evolved into full-blown rebellion. They began to reinvent the wheel. Let's approach God how we want to approach God. In fact, they so disregarded God's word that God's word was very clear. They are to take unblemished animals and the first fruits of all God's blessings and offer them up as a pleasing sacrifice. And yet, we see from the rest of the passage, they were offering sick, lame scraps to this God. Jesus, in his day, did the same thing with the Pharisees. He said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, Matthew 15, 8. The people who were to represent God's people were treating the house of God like a trash-infested landfill and calling it worship. Instead of offering their best, God was treated like a stray dog in a back alley. In fact, God makes them see how trite and casual and small they had made him instead of approaching his altar with reverence. And holiness. Look at verses 8 and 9. 
He says, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? I want you to notice he does not say, well, you, you, you did your best. Not all sacrifices offered to God, even if they're sincere, are acceptable to him. They must be matched with truth. Sincerity and truth. Spirit and truth. He says, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Look at verses 12 to 14. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Brothers and sisters, let me pull you back up from the deep end, put you back on the float. God cares how he is to be worshipped. So give careful attention to his word as you worship him. Worship that is done in contradiction to God's word dishonors God's name. Worship that is done in obedience to God's word brings glory to God's name. Let me ask you a question. Did your life this week show a concern to bring God glory? How are you helping others to bring God glory through their life? You know, earlier in the service, Brad read from Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, which says this is what every follower of Jesus ought to consider and give their life to in worship to God. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern. That means to know what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That begs the question then, New covenant followers of Jesus, of the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. What kind of worship pleases God? Well, he mentions two aspects in Romans 12. First, worship that pleases God is worship in response to God's mercies in Christ. The doctrine of election is not a doctrine for scholars and pastors to debate Yes, it can be hard to understand. Yes, I can see that could be where you can have some tension in your hearts to fully grasp. But beloved, do not let difficult doctrines in the Bible draw you away from the Bible. Let difficult doctrines of the Bible draw you in to the Bible. God says, let me give you a small cup of water. Drink that. All right, I'm going to give you a bigger one. Oh, now we're going to get the big gulp. Bam, one liter, bam, I'm running out of ideas. A big bucket, bam, 
by the time you know it, he wants lions in his church. He doesn't want kittens and cubs who are sucking on milk the rest of their life. We need the milk of his word and we need the meat of his word. And Malachi just rolled out the sirloins. So brothers and sisters, I encourage you, revisit the passages that have been quoted in this sermon. Do not be intimidated to ask questions if you don't know the answers. Every week I come to the word going, Lord, what on earth does this mean? Lord, how am I going to apply it? Lord, how am I going to preach it? And God says, you don't know me as you know, should know me, Blake. I am bigger than you think, you think I am. I am greater than you understand. And so the more I preach God's word, the more I'm realizing I have not even gotten out of the kiddie pool yet. I am constantly swimming going, wow, this God is big. Number two, the second aspect of worship that pleases God is worship that is offered by renewing your mind in God's word. The first is in response to God's mercy in Christ. The second is renewing our minds. John Owen once said, Truth is the only guide to right thinking. If the mind is not guided by truth, its thoughts will soon wander into error. Divine truth is the only guide of the mind in all its thoughts about God. Without divine revelation, man will never have right thoughts about God. In order for us to worship God rightly, we need to know what God's thoughts are. Brothers and sisters, it is a very tempting thing for a preacher and for you for us to approach God in ways that feel comfortable with us that are not kosher with him. It is the mark of folly to do what is right in your own eyes. But brothers and sisters, when God's truth is in our hearts, God's truth is renewing our minds, we approach God with awe and wonder. However, God was dishonored through the sacrifices that were offered in Malachi's day. They had lost that awe. They had dishonored God's name. They had dishonored God's name so flagrantly that God says it would be better if you turned out the lights, turned in the key, shut the door behind you, and get a new job, priest. Look at verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors. God said that. That you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Brothers and sisters, this is not me being critical. This is just me being observant. There are churches all over the world and in the Bible Belt South that God feels the same exact way about in Malachi 1.10. Read Revelation 2 and 3, how Jesus deals with churches. Even today on Sunday morning, some of the worst acts of idolatry are committed every week by professing Bible-going, Bible-believing Christians on Sunday. Scores of people calling themselves Christians 
But God's favor and presence left the building a long time ago. The greatness of God is not the focus of their gatherings. And it shows up in their members' lives. A.W. Tozer made a similar remark in his day about dying churches that gave Jesus a bad reputation in the world with their sloppy worship. He said this, quote, If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on, and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop, and everyone would know the difference. Brothers and sisters, we should be warned by these verses. Our great aim at Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church is that sinners would be humbled and that Christ would be exalted. Pray that CCBC would never lose our awe of God. The way churches lose sight of this is when they lose the gospel as their motivation in worship. And when they stop looking at the word of God for what pleases him in worship. Beloved, we should never forget why we exist as a church. Never forget why September 20th, 2020 happened in this place. Jesus said in Luke 24 that the message of the gospel should be proclaimed in his name among all nations. That means this. If we want to see the worship of the one true God extend through our ministry to the nations, it has to begin right in this building with true and acceptable worship at home. We can't export to the nations what isn't true right here. Our worship at CCBC, our worship in our homes, our worship throughout our everyday lives should be towards the chief end goal of seeing God's name great among the nations. Look at verse 11. God says, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. God cares how he is worshiped. So give careful attention to his word as you worship him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do pray that your name might be great among the nations. And Lord, I pray that we at CCBC would take what Malachi has shown us this morning, that real, true, authentic, acceptable worship is in response to your mercy in Christ. And Father, I pray you would convict us when we are indifferent, when we are apathetic, when we are sluggishly forgetful of your love. Lord, I pray that CCBC would be a light to our neighborhood. We pray that we would also be a blessing to other churches to help them offer acceptable worship to you. Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.